Some of the most encouraging and amazing statements in the Bible were actually written to a very surprising group of people. They were written to slaves. For example, many Christians know these words from Colossians 3, 23 and 24, written by the Apostle Paul. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Many Christians know those words. But my guess is that most Christians don't know that those words were originally written to slaves. Think about that. Think about what it would have been like to be a Christian slave in the first century. You want your life to count for Christ, but how can you make sure that happens when you're a slave? How can you make a difference for Christ when you're a slave? Because that was not an uncommon scenario, there are actually several passages in the New Testament directed specifically toward Christian slaves. The text to which we come this morning is one of those passages. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 if you're not already there over near the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 18 through 25, though we won't get through all of these uh, verses this morning. This section is a unit, so I'd like to read all of it for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, or slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, he, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripe you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." This is one of the richest passages in all of 1 Peter. Here in these verses, Peter reminds us of the example of our precious Savior who suffered in silence. He reminds us about our Savior's purity and sinlessness. He reminds us about our Savior's substitutionary death in our place. He reminds us about our Savior's care for us as a shepherd and an overseer. And these words, believe it or not, were written to slaves. Many Christians know verse 21, where we are told that Jesus is our example and that we should follow in his steps. 
Many Christians know verse 23 where we are told that Jesus did not revile in return or threaten. Many Christians know verse 24 where we are told that Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. But few Christians know that these verses were originally written to slaves. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are several passages in the New Testament that are directed towards slaves. And there is much that we can glean from those passages. I want us to look at one other one by way of introduction to this text. So for now, back up with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. (coughs) After Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 6. In verses 5 through 8 of this chapter, Paul gives instructions to the Christian slaves in the church at Ephesus. When you stop to think about it, it's shocking that Paul would even address the slaves in the church. But by doing so, he is recognizing them as people and not as things or property. And by the way, there were literally millions of slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. Though this is not something we face today in our country, these passages are by no means irrelevant to us. There are valid principles here for us in our own lives, especially in the area of employee-employer relationships, even if it's not an exact parallel. But think about it this way. If a relationship with Jesus Christ was supposed to radically change the behavior of a first-century Christian slave or master, then surely a relationship with Christ should impact the way we are as employees or employers. Our relationship with Christ should even affect that facet of our lives. It's a sad fact that Christians can sometimes be the laziest and worst employees to have. Sadly, I know of some Christian bosses who will not even hire Christians because they have had so many Christians who were lazy and poor employees. I remember when I was 16 or 17 years old, I worked at an electrical plant in Clearwater, Florida, making little electrical transistors and uh, so forth. Nearby was a Bible college, and so this electrical plant would hire part-time help from the school. And I remember this one guy in particular, particular who carried a little New Testament Bible in his back pocket. He carried it to work with him, always had it with him. He would take it out and read it occasionally, and he would talk to others about the Lord on occasion. But this guy would regularly show up late to work. Sometimes he wouldn't even show up at all, and he wouldn't call in. Eventually he was fired. That is a terrible testimony and reputation to have as a Christian. And frankly, it made it difficult for those of us at the plant who were also Christians. We had to live with that. We had to try to overcome that kind of testimony or reputation of what a Christian is. According to the principles here in Ephesians 6, that kind of thing should never happen with a Christian employee. Never. This area of our lives is extremely important. Christianity knows nothing of a division between secular and sacred. The Bible allows no such distinction. Everything a Christian does should be for the glory of God. 
That's the overarching principle in these verses directed towards slaves. Notice what Paul says here beginning in verse 5. Bond servants or bond slaves. Most of our English translations sort of veer away from the word slave because of all the terrible connotations. But actually that is the Greek word used in all of these passages. I only know of one English translation that consistently translates this properly. Most use servants or bond servants. It's the word for slaves. Bond slaves. Bond slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as unto Christ. The basic exhortation here in this verse is to do whatever you're asked to do. That's simple enough. Do what the boss says. But it doesn't stop there. After giving this basic injunction... Paul goes on to add six superlatives, if you will, to show the kind of obedience that should characterize a Christian. How should a Christian obey his master or his boss or his superior? Six ways. One, with respect and fear. Two, in sincerity of heart. Three, as unto Christ. Four, with consistency, five, with inner motivation, and six, wholeheartedly. That's what the Holy Spirit says through the pen of Paul in this text. Verse five says in the NIV, and I think this is a good way to render the idea, obey with respect and fear. That's the first qualifying phrase. Obey with respect and fear. You don't do what you're asked to do grudgingly. You don't do what you're asked to do with a bad attitude. You carry out your duty with respect for the person over you and with fear of consequences if you don't. You see, the attitude is just as important to God as the action. Obeying your superiors without the proper attitude is nothing more than hypocrisy. So the first qualifying phrase goes right after our attitudes. The next phrase in verse 5 says, in sincerity of heart. And here again, the attitude is the key issue in focus. The phrase sincerity of heart speaks of a heart that is so true that it will bear God's scrutiny. After all, he's really every Christian's master. Paul was sort of alluding to this or implying this when he said, Obey those who are your masters according to the flesh. In other words, these are only your earthly masters. You have a heavenly master. Human masters or bosses are only human authorities in our lives. But we have a greater master who has told us what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live. And Paul tells us here, reminds us that by submitting to your master or your boss, or your superior, you are actually submitting to God, your heavenly master. In fact, the last phrase in verse 5 says, as unto Christ. Every Christian should be determined to be a faithful employee as an expression of his faithfulness to Jesus Christ. That's the divine perspective, the the vertical perspective that every Christian should have concerning every facet of his or her life. 
Paul continually introduces this kind of perspective into every relationship in which a Christian is involved. This should color or permeate our perspective of every relationship in our lives. For example, to illustrate this, just go back to chapter 5 and notice how he does this in family relationships. He says in verse 2, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now he doesn't stop there. Notice, as unto the Lord. See, he brings in this divine vertical perspective. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Now he doesn't stop there. He doesn't put a period. He brings in the divine perspective, the divine motivation. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents. But it doesn't stop there. In the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 4, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. He doesn't just stop at that, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. This is the vertical perspective we are to have in relation to every facet of our life, every relationship in which we are involved. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. Oh, beloved, what a difference it makes when we have that kind of perspective on life. Paul continues to expand his thought in verse 6. He says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, don't just do what you're supposed to do only when the boss is looking. That's not your motivation. Consistently do what is right. This term, men pleasers, It's a fascinating term in the original language. It describes someone who doesn't take God into account and therefore his only goal in life is to satisfy people, be a people pleaser. That kind of perspective is the exact opposite of what we were just talking about a moment ago. An eye-service, men-pleasing perspective of life is totally horizontal. God never even enters the thought of this kind of person. And and remember, we're talking about Christians here. God never even enters the thought of this kind of person. Beloved, that is a low level of existence for a Christian. No Christian should ever lower himself or herself to that standard. The quality or excellence of our work shouldn't depend on whether or not the boss is looking or anybody's looking. Shouldn't depend on that. We should maintain a consistent level of excellence because our motivation is not merely external. It is internal. It's not merely horizontal. It's vertical. That's what the end of verse 6 is talking about when it says, doing the will of God from the heart. That is internal, spiritual motivation as opposed to the external motivation of just trying to get in good with people. And so verse 7 continues to exhort this wholeheartedness. Verse 7 says, With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. William Barclay said, The conviction of the Christian workman is that every single piece of work he produces must be good enough to show God. End quote. That's a powerful statement. 
a powerful incentive, a, a powerful perspective. Here again in verse 7 is the same thought we saw earlier in verse 5, verse 6. It's sort of a summary of the entire thrust of this passage. As a Christian, our perspective should be that we are rendering service to the Lord and not just to people. We are doing what we do, whatever it is in life, we're doing it to the Lord and not just for people. And the clincher is verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Those are fabulous words of encouragement. Someday the Lord will balance the scales, so don't let unfair treatment condition your behavior. Never forget that in life you serve the Lord Christ in whatever you do. These words are tremendously encouraging to those who are in undesirable circumstances of employment or other situations where you have someone over you, a superior, who treats you unfairly. Can you imagine how much these words would have meant to the slaves of that day? Knowing that their lives would, could count for eternity? Knowing that the Lord would note, take note and would reward them someday? They may have been treated as property or tools by their earthly masters, but God would treat them as heirs someday and reward them for their service to the Lord that was on earth rendered to a human boss or master. The point of this passage is so clear for Christians today. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you don't have to obey your superior. As Christians, we're not to presume on our Christianity as a justification for disobedience. In fact, just the opposite should be the case. We should be exemplary in our submission. Now, the Apostle Peter says basically the same thing in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's go back there and consider it together. Back to our original text, 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 18, as Peter opens this section of his letter, moves into this paragraph of thought, he introduces it with the word servants. As I mentioned earlier, this is actually the word slaves. It's softened in most of our English translations. This is, this is addressed to slaves. Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. This is the same thing we saw back in Ephesians chapter 6. The basic injunction, the, the basic responsibility is submissiveness. When there are people in authority over us, it is our God-given responsibility to submit to them. That's what God says over and over and over again in His Word. We are to submit to our authorities with all fear. Now what does that mean? It means three things, actually. That means with respect to the person which is why some translations say with all uh, respect. But it's, it's the, the Greek word fear, which is somewhat elastic, has a variety or nuances of meaning. So it means respect to the person, in reverence to God, and with fear of consequences if we refuse. All of that is tied up in this word. 
respect to the person, reverence to God or of God, and with fear of consequences if we refuse. That is God's will for us as his people. So whatever you do, beloved, don't use your Christianity as a justification for insubordination. Here Peter says, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. In other words, don't let the way you are treated condition the way you respond. Did you catch that? Don't let the way you are treated condition the way you respond. That should be the case in all our relationships. We should respond and behave properly regardless of how we are treated. Now that is really easy to say, but that's hard, isn't it? Sometimes it's really hard. And let me tell you one of the things that makes it even harder. When you and I are focused on being happy instead of focused on glorifying God, that makes this even harder. Don't miss that point, beloved. When you and I are focused on being happy instead of focused on glorifying God, that makes this even harder. If we don't get our eyes fixed on, focused on, glorifying God in difficult relationships, then we will not respond how we are supposed to respond. That is why Peter sets forth the vertical focus in the next verse. He says in verse 19, For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. This is where I came up with the title of this morning's message. Peter exhorts us to do what we do because of conscience toward God. The ESV uses the phrase mindful of God. That's a good phrase. The NIV says because he is conscious of God. All the translations are trying to bring out this idea of your conscience toward God, being mindful of God, being conscious of God. That brings up a question. A question that we have to ask and answer individually. Is it possible as a Christian not to be mindful of God? Is it possible as a Christian not to be conscious of God? If you don't believe that it's possible for a Christian not to be mindful or conscious of God, then you are deceiving yourself. Be honest. You and I aren't always mindful of God. We aren't always conscious of God. We're not always thinking about God. What would God want me to do in this situation? How would he want me to react? How, how would he want me to respond? There are times when we say things or do things or respond a certain way. And frankly, God is the furthest thing from our minds. He doesn't even enter the equation. Now, it shouldn't be that way, but it is that way. For all of us, if we'll be honest, at times. When you and I choose to do something we shouldn't do, when we choose to say something we shouldn't say, 
When we choose to respond in a way that we should not respond, God is the furthest thing from our minds. It is a sad fact that there are times when we live as practical atheists. What do I mean by that statement? I don't mean that we deny the existence of God. I don't mean that we say we don't believe in God. It's just that there are times when we live life without any awareness of God or any conscious thought of Him. We're just going through life and doing what comes naturally. It's sort of like, you remember the story in the book of Joshua when the people were conquering the land of Israel and the Gibeonites came to Joshua and they had clothed themselves in ragged clothing and old bread and they were doing this to deceive and and pretend they had come from a long way away and they said, hey, we've come from a long way away. Will you make us a promise that once you get to us, you're not going to conquer us and destroy us and all that? Joshua said, sure, sure, that's fine. I mean, you know, we can give you that commitment. Never even thought to stop and say, God, should I do this or not? It was a major major wrong or mistake in Joshua's campaign. Major. Just didn't think of God. Just did what would come naturally. Sure, someone asked him something. Yeah, we can do that. No problem. That's why Peter makes this comment. We, we, it's very easy for us just to go through life, do what comes naturally. Say what we want to say, do what we want to do, respond the way we want to respond. One of the few things that can enable us To endure grief and suffer wrongfully is being mindful of God. Being conscious of God. That's the vertical perspective that permeates this passage. Verse 20 says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. I have to smile when I read this verse because it shows me just how much Peter was impacted by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He heard what Jesus said that day. It it locked into his mind, into his heart. He didn't forget it. Because what Jesus taught on that day maybe 30 years, 30-some years prior to Peter writing this letter, is clearly behind this section of Peter's letter. Specifically, in Matthew 5, 46 and 47, Jesus said this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your friends only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that? As you know, the tax collectors were the traitors of Jewish society. The Romans ruled the world in the first century, and they imposed taxes on all the countries they had conquered and occupied, including Israel. They hired Jewish people to do the tax collecting in Israel, and the agreement was that a certain amount of tax had to be collected, and whatever was collected above that amount could be kept by the tax collector for himself. However... The people of society did not know what the required tax amount was. So the tax collectors could set their own amount, their own price, their own tax rate, which often led to bribery and thievery and extortion and a host of other evils. 
That's why the tax collectors were looked down upon so much, not because there was or is anything wrong with legitimately collecting taxes. Even Jesus taught the people of his day to pay their taxes. So there wasn't or isn't anything wrong with legitimately collecting taxes, but the tax collectors of that day were not above board in the way they collected taxes. They were thieving, bribe-taking, traitors, and extortioners who sold out against their own countrymen, Jew against Jew. They were men of low character who weren't popular with anyone. Yet, as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, even the tax collectors love those who love them. Even they did that. So if that's all we do, beloved, we aren't any better than they were. If we love people who love us, if we're nice to people who are nice to us, what's the big deal? Anyone can love those who love him, even the people of lowest character. There's nothing special about that. There's nothing commendable about that. There's nothing praiseworthy about that. God won't reward that kind of easy and expected response from us. Anyone can love his friends, but it takes a special person transformed by the grace of God who is able to love his enemies, who is able to love people who treat him wrongly. As J. Oswald Sanders put it, quote, the master expects from his disciples such conduct as can be explained only in terms of the supernatural. End quote. Jesus challenges us as his people, to go above and beyond. What do you do more than others? Is the question Jesus asked. What what makes you different? What makes you stand out? What do you do more than others? Or are you just like everybody else who can be nice to people who are nice to them and friendly toward people who are friendly to them and love people who love them? What do you do more than others? What in your life goes above and beyond? How does the presence of Christ in your life set you apart and cause you to excel? That's the principle Jesus set forth in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the exact principle behind verse 20 here in Peter's letter. He says, anyone can take harsh treatment when it's deserved. But what is really amazing, what is really exemplary, what is really commendable before God is when we endure unfair treatment patiently. And you know something? I think this is especially difficult for us as American Christians. We are trained and discipled by our culture to stand up for our rights. That's what we're all about as Americans. We are told that our rights are the most important thing we have, and we often believe that. But the fact of the matter is that our rights are not the most important thing we have. A clear conscience before God and a shining testimony for Christ are far more important. Way more important. And that's why Peter adds the next verse, verse 21. For to this you were called. That is, those of you who are believers, those of you who are Christians, to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. 
The first phrase in this verse says, To this you were called. And it is referring to the patient endurance just mentioned in the previous verse. Beloved, we have been called to patient endurance in life. Do you realize how often endurance is mentioned in the New Testament? For years I missed this. But now I see it all over the place. It's everywhere. There are many times or seasons or circumstances in life when we just have to endure. You put one foot in front of the other and you do the right thing before God. Maybe you're zapped of emotion. Maybe you're zapped of energy because of the trial or because of the difficulty. But you put one foot in front of the other and you do what is right before God. It is not easy and it is not pleasant, but it is what God has called us to do. And during those times, it is so important that we focus our attention on our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, that's not just a cliche. It's not just a platitude. If you think it is, then you will really miss out on one of the greatest sources of strength and motivation available for the child of God. Peter says Jesus is our example. Here's another major mistake that some Christians make along this line. They dismiss the example of Jesus because they wrongly assume that he endured what he endured by using his powers of deity. That is not true, beloved. That is not accurate. That is not the case. Jesus was a man and he lived as a man. Sure, he was God, but while he was here on earth, he lived as a man. Over and over and over again, the writers of the New Testament exhort us to look at him as our example because he lived life as a man. Don't dismiss his example by saying, whether you say it verbally or in your heart, yeah, but he was God. Oh, sure, he was always victorious. He was God. That's a terrible mistake to make. Jesus is our example of how to defeat temptation, and he is our example of how to patiently endure. Peter tells us here, he has left us an example so that we should follow his steps. He experienced adversity. He experienced unfair treatment. He knew what it was like to have to patiently endure. In fact, think about this. Satan tempted him. One of Satan's temptations was to tempt our Lord to misuse his prerogatives of deity so that he wouldn't have to patiently endure difficulty as a man. You remember after his fasting, 40 days, 40 nights? Listen, if you're the Son of God, just command these stones to become bread. You don't have to endure this. You don't have to be patient. Just use your power. Zap. Make bread. You'll be fine. You'll alleviate your hunger. Why would you patiently endure something like this, Jesus? A temptation from Satan to misuse his prerogatives of deity so that he wouldn't have to patiently endure difficulty as a man. But make no mistake about it, Jesus refused to handle his suffering in a wrong manner. 
He told Peter in the garden when Peter took out his sword, put your sword away, Peter. Don't you think that I could right now call thousands of angels from my father? I mean, Jesus could have used his power in all the wrong ways. Instead of enduring that mistreatment, enduring that wrong, he could have just said, Father, send a thousand angels and wipe these people out, this mob that has come to arrest me. Jesus refused to handle his suffering in a wrong manner. Don't dismiss his example. Look to him and learn from him and draw your strength from him. Let him be your motivation. His sufferings and death not only provided for our redemption, that's the one that we we are most familiar with, his sufferings provided an example for us to learn from and draw from in our own lives. Now, if you want to see the wrong way to handle suffering and difficulty and unjust treatment, just look around at our culture. You don't have to look very far or very long. You'll find plenty of examples of the wrong way to handle suffering, difficulty, unjust treatment. You can find all kinds of wrong examples and, mark this, you can get all kinds of wrong advice even from other Christians. Other Christians give some terrible advice sometimes. Totally unbiblical as to how to handle suffering and difficulty. But if you want to live your life with a commendable conscience toward God, look at and seek to emulate the example of our precious Savior. That's the message of this powerful passage before us. Let's bow together as we close. And as you bow your head and close your eyes here, the few minutes that remain. Think about what you have seen in God's Word this morning. Think about what you have heard, what the Lord has said to your heart. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, you don't know Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, then you need to understand that Jesus is not merely an example. He is a Savior. Later in this very passage, Peter will go on to talk about the fact that he, he bore our sins in his own body. Jesus died to pay for our sins. So if you're here today without Christ, you have no relationship to him, a right relationship to him, then humble yourself before him, right where you are seated, in the quietness of your own heart. Repent of your sin. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive your sin. Ask him to come into your life and give you a new life and a a fresh start, new in him, with a new relationship to him. And you don't have to say it that way. Whatever's on your heart, God knows. Put it in your own words. But ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And if you are a child of God, then you, you and I have seen very clearly how the Lord wants us to live. It's often very counter our cultural, our culture, and in fact, sadly, sometimes this, this instruction is countercultural, even in the Christian community, even in the Christian culture. As I said, we can get such wrong advice, wrong input from well-meaning Christians about how to handle mistreatment, how to suffer, how to handle wrong. But this is what the Lord has said. 
This is what this Holy Spirit of God inspired the Apostle Peter to write and has preserved for us to hear and see and learn from and, and apply in our lives. So however the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning, don't dismiss it. Don't, don't pass it off. Determine that by God's grace you'll respond properly. And where changes need to be made in your, your life, in your attitude, your perspective, whatever, then make those changes. Make them. Be quick to respond, as James says. Don't be merely hearers of the word, deceiving yourselves, but doers. So whatever the Lord has prompted us to, to address, let's make sure we address it. Father, you are so good to us to give us such practical, though difficult, instruction to hear. We confess that we don't always like to hear these kinds of principles, these true kinds of truths from your word because they stretch us, they challenge us, they, they often uh, push us, and uh, we, we have a tendency to resist, to push back. So may we be people who are responsive to your word, who embrace what you say, though difficult, who, who seek to apply what you say in your word, because we want to have a clear conscience before you. We want to live life mindful of you, conscious of you, aware of you always. Enable us to live our lives that way. And in closing, we pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who is not in your family, Father, who can't call you Father rightly, who does not know your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit stir that person's heart, that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, Stir the heart of those, the hearts of those who need to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and to come to know him and receive his forgiveness and receive his salvation. For we pray these things in his glorious and precious name. Amen.